Listener Production. Hi, you are continuing on the journey of Dan Ricardo on episode 90 of the Howie Games Part B. Let's go racing. If you don't mind, I'd love to ask you about a couple of specific races. Firstly, your first race, I was watching the press conference, found it on YouTube. Um, geez, you're a young-looking operator and you've got a nice sort of afro going as well, which I really appreciated. Quite a big surprise. I didn't, didn't expect to be racing uh, Formula 1 this year, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge opportunity for me and still uh, still a bit of a shock, but uh, I'm sure sure it will all be realised come, uh, come Sunday. What, what are your memories of your first Formula 1 race? Like you're walking out there on the grid and the big boys are there and you're a bloke from, you know, remote Perth. Yeah, I, well, I wouldn't say the Afro was a good one. It was. I look back and I'm just like, wow. I've, I've I certainly. Like it. I certainly, like it. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to say I've certainly aged a little better. Um, I, <laughs> I, I tended to. I had a lot of puppy fat as well back then. My, my, I had kind of little chubby cheeks. Um, but you didn't uh, have the neck as well that you've got now. You got a big neck on you these days. It's it's grown over time for sure. But. Uh, yeah, I was I was a I was a bit of a headless chook that first that first weekend. You know, I don't think it was helped by getting notice one week before. You know, normally, uh, norm. I mean, like, so take my my teammate this year, Ocon. You know, he he found out last August or September that he was going to be racing in March. So you know, he's had whatever seven months or something to to know and prepare. I, I had one yeah. week before my first ever you got F1 a phone, race. You got a phone call that we were talking about? Who rings you? What do they say? And what do you say? Yeah, so I, I, it, was, it was Dr. Marco, so Helmut Marco, who was the, uh, well, he still is kind of the, the head of kind of the, the Red Bull racing team and, and, and advisor. Um, Pretty sort of serious dude as well, from my experience. Yeah. Not a man to crack gags with. Yeah, so no, normally, like, if I ever saw his number come up on my phone, it was nine times out of ten, not not normally something positive <laughs> so <laughs> so i wasn't really expecting him to give me some good news um and uh yeah I, I i was actually my parents were in in england at the time with me um and my phone rang and i was like oh so i walked into the other room and and he goes yeah you you're going to be racing on the on uh in silverstone in england next week i was like oh he goes yeah in f1 with uh, with hrt and i was just like wow like Lots of curveballs. So uh, I walked back in the kitchen and my parents were like staring at me and I was like, ah, oh, you might want to stay around a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was how it happened. And then, yeah, I just remember that whole first race week weekend. I was, I was trying to do a lot, like trying to meet this team I'd never met before, trying to get fitted in the car and all this. But um, I remember the feeling of like lining up on the grid that Sunday and I was absolutely pinching myself. Um, because there was, you know, there was the who's who on the grid really then and drivers I'd watched and I guess admired for so many years and now I was, I was there. So, yeah, you have, you have that little bit of, um, I, don't, I wouldn't say doubt, but like even I guess, the, you know, it runs in mind like, do these guys even know my name? Like, do they, do they know who I am? Do they, do they think I deserve to be here? <laughs> um, are they just going to bully me? Like, yeah, you have all this stuff go through your head, but... Uh, yeah, that was kind of the first weekend thoughts. So how many races in till you feel comfortable that you are their peer, if not better, and you're not going to get bullied and you fit in that level of competition? How many races till you feel like that? 
It was the, the first one was it was my third race. Um, so, you know, Silverstones, that first one was pretty horrendous for me. Um, and the second race in Germany was a little better. Um, and then the third one was in Budapest. And uh, yeah, I just there was like rain and dry and it was it was changing conditions. And I just kept it like a, a, a very cool head that day. And I just drove I would say a very mature race for, for my third race in, in, in the sport. And, uh, and Dr. Marco, um, you know, came up to me after the race and gave me a big, you know, pat on the back. And, you know, I finished probably 15th or something, but, uh, for the equipment I had and, and all that, I think he could see my progress, you know, since Silverstone and, you know, three, four weeks later, I'd, I'd made a big step. So that, that gave me a lot of confidence. Um, but then, you know, fast forward six months after that, I'm now in, you know, the following season I'm in Tour Rosso. So I've got a better, a better team behind me. Um, I qualify sixth in, I think, the third race of the year in Bahrain. And at that point, the Tour Rosso was, it was hardly a top 10 car, let alone a, a top six. Where will Daniel Ricciardo be come the end of this race as Toro Rosso start a Bahrain Grand Prix for the first time in the top 10 and Ricciardo with his best qualifying yesterday at sixth place on the grid. So if anyone didn't know my name, by then they did. Um, but, you know, then it was like there was even more weight on my shoulders because like, all right, you've proven you can drive, but now can you run up with, you know, up the front with these big boys and... You know, like Alonso was lining up, I think, in a Ferrari alongside me and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, oh, boy. I was like, all right. I was just like, just don't. You know, the problem was my mentality then was like, don't, don't mess up. Don't mess up. There goes Paul de Resta, reel to wheel with uh, Daniel Ricciardo. And Ricciardo losing places from six in the opening part of this race. And uh, my first lap, I went from sixth to, I think, 15th place or something. And I just got absolutely bullied and ambushed. So I went from hero to zero very quickly and uh, it, took, it took me a little while to, to recover from that one. So to get back to hero, say, say from here down, I want to ask you about four races. So you decide how much of your night you want to take up, hopefully not too much. So you decide the length of these answers. Your first race win in Canada um, with a couple of late passes, what's it like then to stand on top step of the podium and spray the champagne and be the man. Daniel Ricciardo of Sergio Perez moves up into second place. That's, uh, yeah, that feeling, uh, <laughs> like th there's happiness, there's excitement, there's all of those feelings. But one of the big ones, which would probably surprise a lot of people is relief. Um, and I say relief because, you know, especially by that stage in my career, like I did believe I could do it. You know, I believed in myself. I believed I had the talent um, and the kind of the the mentality to, to hold, you know, hold my own. But until you do it, you, you just never know. You know, you can believe forever, but until you, you tick a box, you, you'll never know. Ricardo takes the lead in Canada. Unbelievable. Um, I, I got the lead, I think, with three laps to go. Um, and I had a moment of, oh, shit. Like, uh, 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 are my hands still going to work? Are my feet still going to work? Like, am, am my fingers going to be able to pull the gear? Like, or am I just going to freeze? And uh, that was a legitimate thought that ran through my head. And uh, fortunately, everything still functioned. And, and then, then I was like, all right, yeah, I, I do belong here and, and, and this and that. So crossing the line was a bit of relief.
that it, it kind of everything I believed was truthful. Red Bull pick up the pieces. It is Daniel Ricciardo that comes home to take the victory. I got a flight out tonight, but uh, I don't know. I'm very, tem very tempted to cancel that one. <laughs> For those that follow the sport, obviously you were talking about belief and at that stage you joined Red Bull and you're up against, well, four-time world champion, was he, Seb, at that stage? He's four-time, isn't he? Yeah, he just, just won his fourth in a row when, when I joined. Yep. So so the whole world that follows F1s, how far is this young bloke from Australia going to get wiped by the four-time champ? You'd taken over from Weber and obviously he'd had a lot of success against Mark. How do you step into taking on the top boy in the sport mentally when – I don't know. I, I guess there's expectation on you, but the probably general population was expecting you to get flogged. Fair call or not? Yeah, yeah, I would say that. And that was, I guess that was like a, a bit of a blessing in disguise as well because I had, mm. I knew what I was capable of. I mean, I, I hadn't proved it yet, but I, I certainly believed coming into that season that I could be, you know, up with Seb. If, if not beating him, I, I definitely believed I could be close. Um, so there was not really any expectation or kind of pressure. The only pressure was what I was putting on myself. Um, so that, that was in a way quite easy from a mental point of view, just to come in and just be the kid that smiles and no one expects anything from. And that was actually where I was really able to start all this, you know, overtaking madness. Um, you know, I was, I was catching people by surprise and they they just thought oh, okay he's he's come through the Red Bull program he's he's now got a top seat but Red Bull didn't really have any other options so you know we won't have to worry about him but uh, I, I definitely feel like I quickly made a point and it was important for me to do so you know because then it was just going to go back to 2012 and and be bullied again so I, I needed to kind of reset my my reputation. Frequent listeners to the show Dan will know I've got a couple of young kids that. Uh... Sometimes I have to tell them about the athlete, other times they know them. They're all across your work. Uh, and they ask a question, Dan, and what you've just said uh, relates to the question from my daughter, Sky, who's 10, um, but operates as the pickle. Uh, but something you were just mentioning then uh, stuck in my mind. This is what she's got for you. I hope you can hear me there in Perth. You ready to roll? Yeah. <laughs> She snuck to in there, the pickle. If you wonder who the big penguin is, that will come obvious to you later in the show. Um, I told her she could only ask one, but she wanted two. <laughs> was was the second one out of out of what people? What was? The, did she say French or famous? Out of all the famous, famous people famous. you've met along the way. All right, all right. Um, so the smile is is certainly real. Um, like I've had that since I was a kid, and I think just growing up in in a nice environment and. You know, Perth's a, a beautiful city and I don't know, I think just that, having having the great outdoors to spend time in after school and not be cooped up inside all the time. You hang out with friends and you just, you have a very social kind of happy lifestyle. So I, I always had that in me. Um, and, you know, I, I I certainly do it a lot because I, I love, like I love my job, I love the sport. So I never want to come across as the kid who, looks like he's ungrateful or spoilt or anything like that. So there's, there's a part of that as well. Um, but yeah, I do, I, I do certainly can get angry or have a temper and 
Um, I don't know what. I think you know probably th- some things which will upset me at times is is that because I am a, a I'd say a nice, pretty easygoing guy. Some sometimes you know people can take you for a bit of a ride, and and that you know I guess the older I get, the more I'm becoming aware of that, and that can kind of get me a bit bit angry at times. Um, yeah, otherwise. Otherwise, I'm pretty chilled, I'd say, for the most part. Losing, I mean, I hate losing for sure. Um, but yeah, normal things. And, and famous, uh, famous people, uh, I don't know. Like, I think, you know, one thing I never thought I would get is, is to get like a Hollywood star, like a Sir Patrick Stewart or a Gerard Butler to drink out of my sweaty shoe. Like, that sort of <laughs> stuff is, that's like... So that, they're probably just as big a pinch me moments as anything else. Bravo! Would you like some? Uh, I'd love some, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah come really? on. Oh. You've done it before. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Oh. You're a good man. Thank you. Cheers! <laughs> they're good moments. They're yeah. good moments. Strong. The only time I've seen you mad... And I think I was not equally as mad, but equally frustrated watching the. You'll have to remind me is it the twenty twenty sixteen Monaco, Monaco Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're you're leading. You come into the pits. I know enough about Formula One after having reported on it for a while, Dan. One thing I do know about Formula One: when you come in for your pit stop, there's one thing. As much technology and involvement money there is, there's one thing you need, and that's four tires. Absolutely. You yeah. you rolled into the pits, and the issue was there was no tires. What like what goes through your mind at that stage? You drive in, you see all these blokes. There's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. It's the number one race to win, and there's no tires. They have got the tires ready. The tires are ready. Ricardo is sat there waiting. Did he make the call? Did the team make the call? Whoever made the call, the tires weren't ready. Yeah. Um... I don't know, that, that's honestly like a bad dream. Like you, because it wasn't, it wasn't like a, an unscheduled call. Like I didn't drive into the pits without the team telling me to come in the pits or anything. So it was all like, there was no reason in, in my head why that should have happened. You know, they, they said, all right, box this lap, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I was like, all right, this will be just normal. And uh, kind of to see no tires there, I'm, it's, yeah, it's like a bad dream because you, You've got adrenaline and, and I'm leading the Monaco Grand Prix, so I'm already in in a kind of a zone. And then I come in the pits and I'm just like, is this actually happening right now? And you see chaos and you're just like, oh my gosh. And then I'm like, am I now second? Am I third? Am I fourth? Like, what position am I going to be in? Hamilton now makes his way around Anthony Nose, the final corner. Ricardo put in a really decent lap, but is it going to be enough to come out of the pits and lead this Grand Prix? I rather get the feeling that it's going to be tight one. Here comes the Mercedes of Lewis Hamilton. Ricardo on the inside. Hamilton takes the lead. But Ricardo, of course, has that inside line into Sandoval. Hamilton now leads after a pit stop that saw Daniel Ricardo sat stranded waiting for his tyres. And then, yeah, I just... Once I then got out of the pits and I saw Hamilton pass me for the lead um, as I pulled out, it all kind of then sunk in and... Yeah, the rest of that race, how many laps were left, I just drove around in just honestly pure rage. And I, I, in that moment, I just had no fun at all. I would have happily had the engine blow and 
just ended it there. I, I was not enjoying myself at all. How do you think the team is going to explain away the fact that they called you in and yet weren't ready for you? Don't know. And, and right now, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear anything. I, I, uh, I want to uh, get out of here, to be honest. You know, again, I, I feel I've delivered and done everything I can and not been rewarded. Lewis has a trophy today and uh, a bit like two weeks ago, um, felt that should have been me and it wasn't and I don't have the trophy. So um, this one was, if, if, if Barcelona wasn't clear, this one was crystal clear. Um, and again, I mean, I, I, I held my head high in Barcelona and, and took it on the chin, but this one I don't know how to handle. It, it hurts, it really, this one hurts a lot more than any other. So to win it the year later in a knackered car from 20 laps, I, you know, I remember the message coming through and Martin's like, oh, Martin Brondo on commentary, oh, no, and you're expecting to get past the whole way and then you win the Monaco Grand Prix, framing it from where you've been a year before. Is that the top of the tree stuff? Losing power. Losing power was what oh, no. Daniel Ricciardo just said, a lock-up from Sebastian Vettel. Let's keep it focused, mate. Keep it focused. Yeah, I got no power, though. Will it get better? Negative, Daniel. Negative. Yeah, it, it was. It was. Um, that was, yeah, it was. Uh, even then, like, I, it was pretty much a mirror of, you know, 2016 where I'd qualified pole and, and kind of dominated all weekends and did everything I had to do. And then, you know, and, you know, I came around for the pit stop and the pit stop was clean and everyone was, I'm sure, relieved. Um, yes, yes. So we'd, we'd kind of done everything. Like the race was pretty much over by that point. We just had to look after our tyres and, and we're going to win the race. And then, uh, yeah, a few laps after the pit stop, I, I felt like I was losing power and I could hear it in the engine, you know, and you, you just, you feel these things and you know them straight away. Like it's, you just know when something's wrong in, in one of these finely tuned vehicles. And uh, yeah, I just, my heart sunk. I was just... It was just one of those feelings like, and I hate thinking like this, but it was one of those why me feelings, you know, it was like, what have I done to deserve this, you know? So um, I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken and it took me a few laps to, to kind of pull my head from out of my chest. Um, but yeah, we kind of got uh, just... I broke, I then broke the race down because I knew there was still 50 laps or something to go. And I was like, there's no way I can hold the lead with, with this, with this problem. Um, it, there's just too long to go. But uh, I just broke the race down after that. And I was, you know, still in the lead three, five laps later. And I was like, all right, okay, well, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I was like, I probably can't hold on another five, but let's see. Then held on another five and then I just kept breaking the race down like that. And then, okay, just get through the next five, get through the next five. And then I got to a point actually where I was like, uh, I, I got rid of the why me mentality and it was more, um, I don't know if I can swear, but it was like more the F you mentality of, you know, if, if this is all you're going to throw at me today, then F you, I'm still going to win. And uh, there ain't a goddamn thing you can do about it. So that was, <laughs> that was certainly how the mindset got turned around through the race. Today in Monte Carlo, it's redemption day for Daniel Ricciardo. He wins the Monaco Grand Prix and he will celebrate that for a long, long time to come. How do you celebrate winning the Monaco Grand Prix? Um, so the, 
after the race, you've got obviously the you know the champagne and and the stuff which the TVC and jumping in jumping in the the pool at Red Bull there and all the media around like that that was cool. But then um, this is another part which people you know wouldn't wouldn't know is they're like oh you must have had the biggest parties that night and you know with all your mates and celebrities and this and that and um, winning the Monaco Grand Prix you have to go to um, a formal a formal dinner like a gala dinner with like the prince and all that of Monaco and uh, this dinner doesn't finish till well past midnight and it's it's a sit down dinner so. By this stage, my adrenaline, everything is empty and I'm spent. So uh, I actually didn't, I went to this dinner and I, I got home and that was it. I actually, just just so I could, or because I could, I, I opened a beer when I got home and I actually drank a beer in bed. I kid you not, I drank a beer <laughs> alone, alone in bed. Um, and that, and that, was, that was actually the Sunday night, so... Yeah, that that was death. that was the less fun part. <laughs> the the series drive to survive, mate, has been fantastic because I I've got a, a lot of mates that aren't into Formula One and they give me a hard time and I say, oh, you know, I'm watching the Grand Prix tonight after the footy call or whatever, um, and so many of them text me saying, oh, I can't believe this Formula One season's off now because because they get to know the personalities, they get invested, which is what sports reporting is about, showing who you guys are and what motivates you. Um, and really enjoyed your work in the second series. But I think what it shows to people is that you guys are the tip of the arrow, but how big the arrow is and how many people are working to get you and the team to a certain point. So I'm, I'm fascinated to know how you deal with that, Dan, of, of the – is it a pressure of leading the organisation? Yeah, I, <laughs> it's one of those things like you you have to think about it you you try not to because it, it's quite an overwhelming thought you know thinking a a 20 year old kid can can kind yeah. of be responsible for 800 people or something in a multi-million dollar you know organization but uh yeah i i think the easiest way to think about that is just race race with obviously full heart put put everything into it um and and more, I think preparation as well. Like know know that you've done everything you can before that race weekend to be, you know, in in the place that you need to be at, um, physically and mentally, and just go and go and make them proud, I guess. And yeah, it's that's easy to say, of course. But once you're in the battle, and and you know your egos can get in the way, or just the pure love of competition can get in the way, and for sure that can blow your vision at times. So. You need to be smart, but I honestly still think at the end of the day, the team would rather have a racer than a, let's say, a businessman behind the wheel. You know, if you can have both, perfect. But if it's one or the other, you know, they're, they're still going to want someone who's got, who's got heart and, and desire um, for sure. More of Dan in a moment. The last episode of the show featured WSL surfer Sally Fitzgibbons. The feedback, the feedback has been brilliant at Mark Howard 03 about how Sal's sunny attitude to life gave a lot of you a lift. So thanks for letting me know and for letting Sal know. She's pumped about it, but but it seems Sal's honesty when talking about defeat is what really appealed to you all. Like we mentioned at the start, you're such a positive person. 
And I only ask you this because you are such a positive person. If you weren't, I don't think I could ask you the question. What is it like to have that constant, it's going to happen, bridesmaid, it's going to be your year next year? Like, like, How do you keep fronting up, Sal? Mm, it's a bit exhausting after, after a while. Um, you feel as though that, that leads towards, you, towards a finish line. There is no finish line. Uh, when, even if you grab that cuff and I realise after all these time on, um, in that contemplation mode, after a loss I feel that's where you just have the best time marinating in that. Like at times I would, I, when a few of those came down to the wire, the next day I'd wake up and I'd put on my shoes and I just started running one day. And I was like, I'm just going to run as far as the herd of my body overtakes the herd of what this is. And so I just started running. I wasn't trained for this distance. But on the south coast here and all the way in the Wollongong Pass, I, I really wanted to make it to um, my brother's house, which turned out it was a marathon distance away. So I have run a marathon unofficially. <laughs> That's Sally Fitzgibbons on episode 89 of the show. Time to rejoin Dan. We mentioned overtaking earlier on. I won't take up too much more of your time. You've been generous, although we're both in lockdown, so it's not like there's a great deal going on. <laughs> um, I reckon if I asked these people what they would take from you, it, they would say your overtaking ability. But you've been teamed with Seb. You've been teamed with Max. Obviously, you race week in, week out against Lewis. So in a brief sense, if you could take one thing from Max's ability that you've seen as his teammate, what would it be to add or to improve your game? I think, you know, where, where credit to Max is, is uh, and I think a lot of it was his age at the time, you know, that had its, its, its kind of downsides with a, a little bit of immaturity, but it had his upsides with he really just didn't, didn't care about anything, about annoying people or about the risks or it was just like, I'm just going to go out there and drive this thing as hard as I can and I think, yeah, he probably didn't understand the responsibility as, as we touched on. So he kind of raced with a lot of free will and, and that, that worked out, you know, pretty well for him a, a handful of times. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, when, when he joined the team really from, from day one, uh, he just got out of the pits and, yeah, really ragged the car and wasn't really caring about protecting the equipment or anything. It was just you know, a hundred or nothing. And, uh, that, that was, that was cool because a lot of the time I would, I would, you know, build up to it. And yeah, sometimes I was probably a bit too nice as well on, on the, on the car and on, on things like that. But, uh, yeah, I think we certainly pushed each other a bit harder through, through that year. So that, that was a good thing. So if you'd take sort of his, his sort of devil may care attitude, what would you have taken from Seb watching Seb up close for a year? Seb, I would have taken his, um, let's say his like technical approach and his, uh, let's say his homework um, in terms of, yeah, he, he would spend a lot of time going through stuff and um, which I think I always had, but uh, also his communication with the team, you know, he was, he was very direct and I guess, you know, quite German in that sense where he'd just kind of say it how it is, but so he would definitely get the message across, but do it in a way where people were happy to hear his, you know, constructive criticism. He wasn't, he wasn't putting anyone down, but he was just telling them that this needs to be better, but I'm in it with you 
kind of thing, you know. So he he had a good approach to kind of keep keep the team, um, you know, working hard, but with him, not against him. And Lewis? Lewis, um, obviously, I haven't worked personally with him, but I think no. he's he's obviously been able to. I think the the most impressive thing is is how he's been able to have such a kind of extracurricular lifestyle. If, if that's if that's the best way of saying it, um, but you know, still still rock up at, at the circuit and still get the job done. So, you know, he's been able to balance uh, a pretty fulfilled lifestyle, um, yet still kind of keep his eye on the prize. So, um, yeah, and I, and I think you know to to obviously win back to back championships and and whatnot, um, and to kind of hold that level of motivation. Um, and, and obviously that desire and not get complacent with, yeah, obviously he's made a lot of money, things like this, but he still still has his head in the game. Um, I guess that is, is as kind of flamboyant as he is at times, he still has a pretty level head in competition. You talked about um, money and obviously money and fame and Monaco and private jets is what we see of Formula One drivers and you live part of that life. What is the life actually like being an F1 driver? Is it glamorous from the outside looking in? Is it a lot of travel which takes away from the glamour, like living in Monaco when you're a bloke from Perth, the whole package of being an F1 driver, what's it actually like if you can put that into words? It's, I mean, it's it's a bit of a bit of everything. I think you touched on it well. You know, it's there's the there's certainly upsides of yeah nice hotels beautiful cities and you always get treated well you know obviously if you're, you're staying in a nice five-star hotel then they'll likely you know upgrade your room or give you a nice fruit platter or something you know as as you as you walk in so there's there's always these like little... oh, i was hoping for something a bit more rock star than a fruit platter but okay <laughs> i mean there's been oh it might be a bottle of champagne or something but but like you know th- these little things you know, you, you, we get used to, but they're still like it, it's still not normal, I guess, to to have kind of uh, such good treatment all the time. Um, and then, yeah, there is the fair share of flying private jets, and you might share share planes with other drivers, and um, so you can find yourself, you know, there's ten of you on on a plane together, and that's that's in itself just a unique situation. Um, but it's, it's, how's that it's after fun. a race when one of you's taken one out and one's won and one hasn't won? And how's that vibe? <laughs> You'll either sit on other ends of the the plane, even though they're, they're not they're not very big planes, but uh, or <laughs> s- someone there'll be a middleman who might break break the ice with uh, a little bit of a little bit of something on ice, um, and that <laughs> that tend that tends to kind of ease ease the mood. Um, but yeah, it's you know so obviously you've got this and and all that, but. As, as you touched on, you've also got the, the relentless schedule, you know, so a, a lot of the time, you know, drivers might fly private jets because they've got to get to that meeting or that appearance in, in a small amount of time. And literally, if we flew commercial, we wouldn't make that appearance. So a lot of the time, it's not just for glamour, it's for, it's, it's kind of for work or, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this is this is, uh, I'm not complaining with this, but yeah, a lot of the time it is just because our schedule is so relentless that we don't have enough days in the week to, to do it any other way. So um, yeah, it's, it's busy. Like I, I think, you know, if I am to say, I've, I've talked obviously a lot of positives about the sport. I think some of the, the less positive things are 
I think basically, I you know, we do more marketing and, and media and sponsorship stuff than we do actual driving, you know, and that's, as a mm. kid, you don't, you don't expect that, you know, you don't, um, it's not that you don't sign up for that, but you just don't know how much is involved until you, until you are a driver. So yeah, I, I would love to yeah. race more than, you know, kind of be in front of a camera, but uh, I understand that the sport is obviously a, a massive business as well. And and living in Monaco, mate, again as a bloke from Perth, like can you just whack your trackies on and go down to the milk bar and get a loaf of bread, or does it not roll like that? <laughs> it, I mean, it can, it can. I think the the biggest thing is, and you know, Monaco is it's beautiful and it's one of the prettiest kind of little places to to look at visually. Um, but it's also it's also um, you know not what I was used to growing up. Uh, in terms of yeah I, I grew up with a, a backyard and things like this and you know it, it's only it's only uh apartments in Monaco and so you don't you don't have the space that you're used to um so again I'm not complaining but it's just different um but you know obviously people say oh Monaco it's what's it like and I think they think that we've got you know these three-story mansions all along the the Riviera but uh no every, not? everyone's living on top of each other and I, I, I was in a, a one-bedroom apartment for, for six years there. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's also not, not always what it seems. D- don't get me wrong. It is, it's nice and it's beautiful and whatever. But, yeah, it's also not, not a, a backyard with a swimming pool or anything like that. You now get the question. One more from me and one from my young bloke now, mate, who is eight, yeah. uh, operates as the big penguin. I don't know why, but his name is Mac. This is what he's got for you, mate. Hi, Dan, Big Penguin here. You're my favourite Formula 1 driver, even more than Lewis. My nickname is Big Penguin. I don't know why, but I give it to myself. I like it. Your nickname is Honey Badger. Did you give it to yourself or did someone else give it to you? And what does it mean? (laughs) Big Big Penguin is unique. I've never heard anyone in these 30 years called Big Penguin, so (laughs) that's a first. Self-dubbed as well. I like that. Yeah, self-proclaimed. Well done. Um, yes. So, honey badger. Um, it it was. I guess it was given to me um, from uh, yeah one of my previous trainers, um, Stu Smith, who uh, uh-huh. who's a Brizzy boy. Um, and uh, so yeah, we were um, yeah we we worked together for quite a few years, and I just remember one day he showed me you know the the, the honey badger clip, one of them on YouTube, and. It was obviously funny where he, you know, bites the gonads off and kills a python or something. And I was just like, this... Not this... funny for the python. <laughs> no, no, I think he did it off a, was it a, a lion or... Anyway, I was, I was quite taken back and, and I loved it and I laughed and that. And then, you know, we, we kind of talked it through and, and Stu was like, mate, I, you know, I, I, see, I see a lot of similarities with, with this and you. You know, it, it looks kind of innocent and pretty cuddly and whatever friendly from the outside just looks like a you know another furry animal um but you know when when someone tries to take what's his or whatever he he you know fights back and he's he's got some um there's another word i'd use but i i can't use that word but he's got he's got a bit about him let's say that and uh okay and yeah Stu goes look i don't think you've shown all of this yet but i know it's in you and uh so it was kind of like, I guess it was like kind of consider it, consider using this as your spirit animal. And then, uh, 
that was when, yeah, 2014, I joined Red Bull and I was like, all right, let's do the Honey Badger Proud and don't, uh, I think a lot of people just judged me by my cover and there was a, a lot more of fight in, inside me. So it was important to let that out. Well, just on that, mate, you've obviously done yourself proud, your family proud, the teams you've driven for proud, your country proud. 171 starts, 29 podiums, seven wins. Is it enough without a championship to say you've had an absolutely fantastic career, you race another 80 times, you snag another seven, eight, nine, ten wins? Is that enough or would there be a hole if there wasn't a championship? There would be a hole. They would, and and that's and that's not in a not in a way where I would leave the sport like bitter or depressed or anything like that. But for sure, there would there would be a hole because because I believe I believe I can do it, you know, and I believe I'm good enough to do it, and and I know if if I got down to that fight mentally, I would I would be able to to run with it, and yeah. Um, so I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm certainly proud of what I've achieved so far. But uh, if, if it ended today, yeah, I, I wouldn't be complete. I'd be happy, but not complete. Well, I hope the completion comes for you, mate. As I let you go, uh, we're lucky that a lot of kids listen to the show, um, doing things with their parents, which is really, really cool. If you had a piece of advice for a youngster growing up that wanted to succeed in any field from what you've learned along the way, um, and this could be a three-hour question, I often say that, and it's not an easy one to answer in a, in a nutshell or in a kernel, but what would you say to the youngsters listening that hope to do something? Yeah, I, I normally keep this one pretty short and, you know, I think it's the core of anything you do and it's it's like if you ask someone if they like their job and and they say, oh, not really. I kind of just look forward to the weekend. And I'm like, well, what, what are you doing? Find something you love doing. It, it can't be that hard. Just search a little harder or dig a little deeper. You know, there's, there's that many avenues in life to find something that you enjoy doing. So that was really why I started racing was I loved it. You know, I, as, as a kid, I didn't think about, you know, being famous or making money or any, any of that. It was just, I wanted to race and I loved more than anything. I just loved competition. I loved seeing if I was better than the kid next to me. And, you know, that was, that was really my drive. Um, and now being able to do it on a world stage, that's like the ultimate, you know, seeing if I'm better than a kid from Brazil or a kid from England or, you know, that's, that's awesome. So, yeah, I would just honestly take that, find something you love doing and don't, don't think about 10 years' time where it will put you. Just, just do it and... Uh, I'm sure it will lead to, to great things. I love it. I know you're a West Coast Eagles fan, so imagine you're reading the footy record where you get the old player profile. Um, so uh, driving for Renault is Dan Ricardo. First thing that pops into his head, favourite food is? Pizza. Best thing you can cook is? Salad. <laughs> <laughs> favourite racetrack is? Monaco. Last book read? Ooh. That's a while ago. It was probably, actually, I want to say it was my first year in, in Europe. Um, it's not about the bike. Old Lancey's. Dan, that's like back in 2007 or something. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, favorite, favorite song at the moment? Ooh. Ooh. Um, uh, let's go. You've got me. All right, just go uh, by and by by camp. The, the band I mentioned before. Okay, our crew camp, yeah, right. Yeah. 
Um, uh, what are you watching on Netflix or Ozark? On whatever you watch it. On? Ozark. Ozark. Oh, have you started the new series? I am about to indulge in that this evening. Yep. Right. Well, I better let you go to watch Ozark. Uh, I haven't seen the new series either. Um, it's amazing. Favorite favorite holiday destination? Uh, I mean, I, I love coming home. Don't get me wrong. So that that's certainly one of them. Um, otherwise, actually, I'll, the states is cool. I love Austin. We we get to race in Austin, but that that yeah. is a that is a fun place. Um, really kind of underrated and a little bit undercover, but Austin is is certainly one of them. I got no more for you. You've been outstanding. I don't think I've got any more for you. Is there anything else I should ask you? Um, what's for dinner? No. <laughs> okay, then what I is for know, dinner? I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've got to. I got to go right. prepare something. <laughs> Are you cooking? Uh, it'll be a collective effort. Yeah, there's three. There's okay. three of us here, so we'll we'll figure it out. <laughs> hey, the last one. How do you know Adam Gilchrist? Because I must thank Gilly. Now I should have at the start because he teed this up, putting me in touch with you. How, how do you know the great West Australian wicketkeeper batsman? Yeah, Gilly. I uh, well, obviously as a kid, I, I knew him from TV uh, and watching him for sure. And then we got to know each other. It was a few years ago through it was through a sponsorship um, that we had. So I got to know him, you know, personally. Um, oh, I don't know, probably five years ago now. And uh, yeah, obviously, as as you know, ripping bloke. And uh, yeah, even kind of that for me, like. I said, watch him as a kid on TV, and then to have a kind of a relationship with him, it's even that sort of stuff's pretty, pretty surreal. So, yeah, Gilly's a good man. As are you. Hey, mate, I really appreciate you taking, well, well over an hour of your time. Um, stay safe, mate. I hope you get to go racing soon, and I hope everything you're chasing comes true. But um, we love watching your race in this house and all around the shop, mate. So, Continue along your way, stay safe, and thanks for having a chat with me on the Howie Games, Dan. No worries, Howie. Thank you, mate. Say hi to Big Penguin and Pickle for me. I will. Peace, brother. (laughs) See ya. What a wonderfully warm, entertaining, lovable fella Daniel Ricciardo is. His parents, and you think about this when you become a parent, his parents must be so proud of the way he approaches life and all those that he comes in contact with. Thanks to Dan for being incredibly generous with his time and for taking an F1 fan like me and hopefully you into his world. Good luck to Dan, the man. Darcy Thompson continues his charge toward the Howie Games MVP for 2020 for his work ethic on keeping the show cranking. Also, a shout-out to Grant Tothill and Kim Norman from Podcast One who both view life through a positive lens and continue to back the podcast. In fact, everyone at Podcast One, you are doing a super, super job. I love you all and everything you're doing. But mainly to you all out there, our listeners, without you, there ain't no show. So thanks from me to you. Until the next episode with Chris Scott, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener